And let's start, as we traditionally do, by reading the communal prayer together. O Lord, our God, you have chosen to make yourself known through your creation, your word, your Son, and your Spirit. Now reveal your glory to us and through us, the Church. Speak to us, form us, lead us, dwell in us. Teach us today how to love as Jesus loves, to welcome the stranger, heal the sick, and care for the poor, to bear good news, build bridges, and bring your people home. For Christ in us is the hope of glory. May your perfect will prevail in us this day. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. And if I may add to that prayer, Father God, I pray that you fill every corner, every mind, every heart with your spirits today. God, give us ears to hear, Lord, the message that you have for us. May it not be of me, Lord, but of you. God, as you speak to us, as you form us, as you lead us and dwell in us today, we just pray for all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we are on part six of a sermon series called We Are Family. And I think it has been a very convicting series because I've been hearing from some of you that you don't even want to come to church anymore because you are sitting in your seat and you're squirming, thinking, oh, great, the pastor is talking about me again. And I have to say that it has been just as convicting for the pastors as well to write it. The Lord did quite a number on me this week. There has been many tears shed as I researched and meditated upon our topic for today. And I'm afraid I'm going to be breaking the golden rule of preaching, which is never use the pulpit as your confessional. And uh, I think I may break that a little bit, so here we go. In this series so far, we've been talking about how to be empathetic, how to let go of our bitterness. We've been talking about how to fight well, among some other topics. And this morning, we will be discussing how to confront in love and be reconciled with one another. How do we have difficult conversations with the people we love in a way that enriches our relationships and helps us to reflect the love of God? How do we rise above those ugly, painful feelings and move towards reconciliation and harmony? Perhaps the Holy Spirit has already taken a hold of your heart and he's bringing to mind broken relationships in your life. And I encourage you, don't push those thoughts away. Perhaps the Lord is going to do a mighty work in your hearts today. So as we have mentioned in the series, as Christians, we should be really good at doing relationships. We should be awesome. We should be reflecting the patience 
and the goodness and the long-suffering of Jesus Christ in our relationships. Church, have we been good at this so far? Frank Carver says in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he says this, the divine dimension, not common tastes and preferences or compatible personalities, constitute human relationships as truly Christian. When we love well the people that we get along with, the people that we are compatible with, this is all good. But when we choose to love and love with the love of Jesus, the people we are not inclined to get along with, now that reflects the spirit of Christian relationship. So to learn how to confront in love, we're going to do a quick study on Paul the Apostle, who was exemplary at confronting in love, as we can see in his epistles. So Paul, through these letters, he, he has difficult conversations where he rebukes, corrects, encourages, and reconciles with his people in his care. And particularly in the book of 2 Corinthians, we see Paul's heart. He reveals the, part, the heart of a pastor. Paul is deeply committed in his, to his people, and he exemplifies a crucified and resurrected character in his relationships. Pastors, lay people, this is the love. This is the commitment we should have with one another. So before I read an excerpt from 2 Corinthians, I want to do a quick background of what's going on here. So Paul, he's traveling in his missionary journeys, and he's planting churches along the way. And he plants a church in Corinth during one of these trips, and then he lives there for about a year and a half, and then returns to Ephesus. And in his absence, these Corinthians are led astray. So Paul writes a letter, a letter that we know know as 1 Corinthians, to address this and other matters. But then he receives a report. A report that the conditions of the church is even worse than before. So Paul travels back to Corinth, the church that he planted, and he visits with them. And he calls it a very painful visit. Because a ringleader of sorts rises up against Paul and his beloved church stands on the side of the attacker. So Paul returns to Ephesus. He's hurt. He's humiliated. But then scholars say, in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, there's a couple of more letters that he writes. And he's comforted with the news that the Corinthians have admitted to their wrong, and they are wanting to restore their relationship with Paul, their pastor. But there's still accusations out there, severe criticisms against Paul. Right? There, there is uh, outsiders questioning Paul's integrity, his spiritual authority. So he writes his church another letter, which we call 2 Corinthians. So as a pastor, I can only imagine the pain that he felt. 
He plants a church. He grows to love them like his own children. He lives in their midst for about a year and a half, and then they betray him. They betray him. His spiritual family turns against him, allowing others to criticize his ministry and question his integrity. The church that Paul cherished and loved. And I imagine just how many times he has been crying just at the feet of Jesus, praying out to him, God, give me wisdom. God, give me humility. God, lead me in these ways. So let's see how he responds. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 10. Okay, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 1 to 10. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would die or live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. May joy know no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concerns for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and we were not harmed in any way by us, and so were not harmed. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So here in these 10 verses, the way that Paul approaches his letter to the Corinthians, we can glean some principles that Paul uses for our own relationships. And I think if we take these principles to heart, we can demonstrate Christ's love in our relationships. And I, as I go through these principles, it might be easy for us to like kind of point a finger at other people and say, mm-hmm. But I encourage each of us to really look deep within the areas that the Lord wants to grow ourselves. So, four principles of confronting in love. Four principles of confronting in love. First of all, 
It's not about you. It's about Christ in you. It's the first principle. So verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friend, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So before a very moving appeal for full restoration, Paul reminds them the true purpose of why they need to be reconciled. The true purpose. We need to deal with the broken relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can be purified and so that we can perfect holiness out of reverence for God. So the chapter right before this, Paul asked the Corinthians in verse 14 to 16, he asked the Corinthians these questions. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. So Paul is saying that we should have nothing in common with wickedness, with darkness, with unbelievers, with idols. And then Paul quotes from the Old Testament where God says to his people, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And God promises, I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So touch no unclean thing. Be holy. Purify yourselves from anything that defiles your heart, your mind, your spirit. So let me ask you, right now in your life, what broken relationship is causing sin in your heart today? And here are some questions I would like us to reflect on. What are you allowing to fester? What am I, sorry, what am I allowing to fester in my thoughts, motives, and feelings? Does this action or thought defile or contaminate me? Does it harm me physically? And does it darken my mind and heart? Has it left me feeling unkind, small, dirty, or estranged? Any of these kinds of thoughts or attitudes or actions, these emotions is not to be touched or admitted into our lives. Touch no unclean thing. In the Old Testament, the people of God, they were commanded to go to the temple and be purified through these strict rituals and offerings. 
so that they can remain in covenant with their God. But Paul says here that we are now the temples of the living God. How is this possible? It is only through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, that purifies us. And the Holy Spirit lives in his people, lives in us, making us the temples of the living God. Christ in us. No more rituals or offerings. It's just an embracing of Christ's righteousness for ourselves in us. And this, this is why we must be reconciled with each other. You know, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about being purified out of the reverence for God our Father. It's about Christ in us. So what are the reasons we neglect to restore our broken relationships? What are the reasons for that? Was it anger or pride, hurt, maybe even laziness? Is it fear? Have you dismissed these relationships as being not important? Have you written these relationships off because you're, you're afraid to be disappointed again? This is not about us. It's about Christ in us who forgave our sins and gave us the ability to forgive others. So I want to pause here to describe for a moment um, a hurt that Albert and I have been feeling lately. So it's come to our attention that a small handful of people have been having some pretty negative thoughts about us taking the call um, in Northern California as district superintendent. And some of these comments that are being made are things like, oh, you know, come on, tell us the truth. You're happy that you're leaving. Or, uh, you know, Albert, you were p- playing chess the whole time, being strategic, this whole merge, everything, so that you can um, vie for that position as DS. You know, some other comments, you know, Albert, your true colors have come out. And some other comments that I don't want to get into. But basically, it's like, you know what? You can go. What have you done for us? What have they done for us lately anyways? And honestly, in the past 13 years of ministry, it is probably the most hurtful, uh, the most pain that Albert and I have felt because of ministry. But being in that place, We've just felt this urgency from the Lord and say, he's saying to us now, especially now, don't let bitterness and resentment take root in your heart. Especially during this transition. You know, I want to say God as my witness. The only reason that we are leaving Trinity is because we strongly believe that the Lord is sending us. God as my witness, Albert nor I have ever once, not even once, even entertained the idea of being DS anytime in our future. God as my witness, both Albert and I are heartbroken about leaving you, our Trinity family. We're very heartbroken about it. And God is telling us, Christine, Albert, love 
and embrace deeply before you go. He's convicted us to keep our church pure from any thoughts of bitterness and anger. You know, to stand united in love with each other, with you, so that Satan cannot get a foothold. One of the lessons God taught me this week is not to let my own hurt take priority over the unity of the church. You know, something that I have failed a number of times in my ministry here. And for that, I ask for forgiveness. You know, it's not about me. It's not about my hurt. It's not about Albert. It's not about you. It is about Christ in us, that in the cross, in Jesus Christ, that we have unity as the body of Christ, and we are commanded to keep that pure and holy. And God is good. He has sent me a number of you this week to minister to my heart, and I really thank God for that. So that is one. It's not about you. It's about Christ in you. Second principle. Examining your own heart comes first. In verse 2, Paul says, we wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. I do not speak to condemn you. Paul's conscience, he, it is clear. He's examined his own heart. Any unjust action or any ill will or misdemeanor to the Corinthians, he has asked, Lord, examine my heart. Is there any wrong in me? And Paul's conscience is clear. He's even reflected on his motivation of confronting the Corinthians. I do not speak to condemn you or accuse. He doesn't write his church to make them feel bad or to get his point across or to right a wrong. Even in his motivation, Paul, his conscience is clear. So before we confront anyone, we need to get these two things right. First of all, examine your heart. Take ownership of the wrongdoing that you have done. And how do you do this? Maybe before you start this conversation, you ask them, is there anything that I have done or said or anything that I have not done or not said that has hurt you? Please describe that for me and listen to them. Don't get defensive. And believe me, I know how hard this is. You know, our emotional baggage and our insecurities, our self-doubt, our personal hurts, it's a screaming, defend yourself, protect your heart. Keep your eyes on their sin, not our own. In our broken relationships, what personal wrong are we not acknowledging? This is what we should be asking. And the second thing, examine your motivation. Right? We need to have the right motives. Are we confronting to feel better about ourselves? To get something off our chest? To get the other person to admit their wrong and how they have hurt them, hurt us? Are we trying to embarrass them or make them feel ashamed? You know, Albert... I have to admit, confessional, he's the first to say sorry almost every single time. And I have to say, 
why are you sorry? You know, I have to have him fully understand how he has hurt me. It's not about me. It is not about me. It is Christ in me. Are we trying to make them feel ashamed and admit their wrongs? Or are we merely trying to love them fully, remove any of those barriers and restore them, restore the relationship? And we have to be very shrewd in this self-examining. It's so easy to convince ourselves that our motives are pure. You know, I had a friend, uh, I had a falling out with a friend once, and I confronted her with something that I thought uh, was not right. And I confronted her, and, and, and I prayed about it, and, and I, I asked for wisdom for, from the Lord, and, and I tried to be gentle, and I thought I was being so gentle, so wise, and so kind. I thought so, but my friend did not. She was hurt deeply by my words, you know. Her hurt translated to anger, which then in turn hurt me. And I wrestled with God. God, what? You know, I, I just felt so, so much that I was like... Uh, just, just ministering to her and helping her in this way, and, and, and this anger is turned to me. And, and I said, Lord, give me the humility to restore this relationship. And we've made a couple of more attempts to restore what was lost that day, but failed. She was upset. I was upset. In our Christian way, we decided just to let it go, And we remained fairly good friends. I thought I did my best. You know, I thought I was being humble. You know, die to myself, live for Christ. And this week, for a little bit of uh, research, and because the Lord had convicted my heart so much, I called her up. And I said, tell me. Tell me one more time. How did I hurt you? What posture, what attitude, what words hurt you? And in her grace, she lovingly and gently pointed out what I did to hurt her. I had prioritized the message over the person. Right? Showing her my perception of right and wrong came before really, truly understanding her hurt and her pain. At the time, I would have dug my heels in and said otherwise, that, that, that I really was putting the person first. But looking back and really reflecting, the Lord showed me my wrong. And I want to... Uh, explain to you why this was so difficult to me. Not, not to excuse myself, but to make a point on how our own past and our own baggage gives us such limited scopes of our blind spots. You know, I've shared at the pulpit a number of times my past of sexual abuse. And I think because of this experience, I have a very heightened awareness of what is right and wrong. And I have a strong need to wrong that right. 
And this becomes even more obsessive when I feel like I am being wronged, or worse yet, the people I love are being wronged. And so I put my sense of propriety above, above my care for the person, but it's so, in such a subtle way that it takes me a while to see it. For example, Albert and I will get into a fight because he's overworked and stressed and he's got a gazillion deadlines that, I haven't, that he hasn't been able to reach. And he attacks me or says something that is so incredibly unfair and I hold on to that and I get upset. He says, sorry, oh, but Albert, you really wronged me without caring for his stress, his hurt, right? I'm putting what was right and wrong above my care for what was going on in his life? Do we put our message above the person? In what ways does your past keep you from seeing those unhealthy patterns that you have in your relationships? It's a very painful process, this discovery, this self-discovery but it's much needed. In Psalms 139, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. See if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May this be our prayer. Okay, third principle. Commitment to the relationship is key. In verse 2, Paul pleads with his church, make room for us in your hearts. And then he goes on to say, you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. And he says in a previous chapter, he says, oh, Corinthians, our hearts are opened wide. Paul is committed to the relationship even after his hurt and betrayal and the disloyalty and the accusations, he is not going anywhere. How committed are we to our relationships with our family and our friends, with our church? Are we committed through thick and thin? Are our hearts fully wide open or are we holding back? I know it's scary sometimes. It's scary when we've been hurt in the past so badly that we don't want to risk being hurt again. You know, Paul was hurt badly, yet Christ in him gave Paul the ability to forgive and open his heart wide. And I believe that Christ can do that for you and me as well. So in the NIV, it says that the Corinthians had such a place in Paul's heart that he would live or die with them. In the NASB, however, it says that the Corinthians were in his heart to die together and to live together, right? Die first and then live. Why am I pointing this out? I think it's powerful the way that the NASB have it, has it. In our earthly existence, we first live and then we die. But in our spiritual existence, we die first, and then we live. 
We die to ourselves and live in Christ. And as redeemed people, we can commit to each other like this, can we not? That we die together by proclaiming the work of the cross for ourselves, where our old selves are dead. And in Christ, we can commit to live together in freedom, in forgiveness by the blood of, the, of Christ. Is there possibly a hurt in the world that the cross cannot overcome? We are to love, and we are to love extravagantly with our hearts open wide. This is a mark of a Christian. Now, let's not deceive ourselves and tell ourselves, you know what, that broken relationship, that has nothing to do with my relationship with God. It absolutely does. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Commit to the relationship. So I recently had a thing with another friend here at church. I have a slew of stories of how I have not loved well. And thank goodness to the Lord in his mercy and grace, he sees, he lets me see some of the good that I've done or else I would have quit ministry a long time ago. But saying that ministry is ugly sometimes, it's messy sometimes, because it involves broken, imperfect people like myself. I was going through some major anxieties about leaving Trinity, and I was frustrated that the women's ministry was not going a certain direction. Uh, I'm usually meticulous when I write emails out of frustration. I'll pray about it and pray about it, and I'll craft my email, and then I'll show Albert, and Albert will always say, don't put that there, that sounds snarky, don't use capitalized letters, <laughs> whatever, and then I'll fix it and pray about it, and then I'll send it off. I'm usually good at that, but this time I was not. And in my frustration, I wrote this email, and I knew that I should read it over again. I just closed my eyes and clicked on the send button. So because of that, I unintentionally hurt someone from that email group. It was a group of women. And... Um, and, and this someone wasn't even the cause of most of my frustration, but it was very reasonable for her to come to the conclusion that that frustration was uh, fueled towards her. And it all came to a head at one of the core meetings, and there were th these bad feelings came out, and uh, there were tears. But thankfully, there was also reconciliation and restoration. I'm thankful for this friend, Molly, I'm thankful because she received my messy apology. I'm thankful that she didn't write me off. And in fact, she drew closer to me. She drew closer and said, Christine, I would love to meet regularly with you. Now that's commitment to the relationship. And she's not here today, but I'm sure she'll be listening online soon enough. Thank you, Molly. Hey, that's principle three. Commitment to the relationship is key. Okay, fourth point. Remorse is not the same as repentance. Remorse is not the same as repentance. We need to confront those people that we love that in a way that encourages them to repent and not be remorseful. 
Paul says in the letter that he rejoiced that the Corinthians were moved to repentance. He regretted that his last letter caused sorrow, but was also rejoicing that their sorrow was according to the will of God. And in verse 10 it says, For that sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. It was a difficult letter for Paul to write. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So this goes back to examining your motives for this confrontation. Is it for them to feel sorrow just so that you can feel better? Or are you confronting out of concern for their spiritual well-being. So do you want them to feel repent, repentful, repentant, or remorseful? Repentant or remorseful? Let's look at the difference. So remorse, metamelomai in the original Greek. This kind of sorrow causes a change of mood or feelings. So there's guilt, and it's heavy, and it kind of drives you to a darker place. For example, Judas was remorseful for betraying Jesus. And that incredible amount of guilt and shame led him to death, literally. Right? Judas hangs himself in his sorrow. That's remorse. But repentance, metanoia, this sorrow causes a change of heart, and thus a change in behavior. So rather than an emotional response, it's a spiritual response. So for example, Peter as well, he betrayed the Lord, but he felt repentant. His sorrow led him back to the Lord, and he found joy in his salvation. So when you confront someone, words really matter. What words will you choose? They can bring life, or they can bring death to their spirit. Does it draw them closer to the Lord to a dark or to a darker place of despair? Correct an older man in a way that shows respect. Make an appeal to him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as if they were your brothers. Treat older women as if they were your mothers. Treat younger women as if they were your sisters. Be completely pure in the way you treat them. It makes me think about the way that I discipline, especially this one over here. Right? Because sometimes... When I discipline him, I feel like it makes him angry and it draws him away from light and goodness. I need to learn as a mother how to discipline in him that convicts him and draws him closer to the Lord. We have to learn that as parents. If we treat people with dignity and love, our confrontations should make them feel convicted. I need to right this wrong. 
not condemned. I am something wrong. Of course, there are exceptions. You know, sometimes a person's brokenness is so deep that it doesn't allow them to hear with an open heart. But even then, we must strive to minister to them in that brokenness. Last week, Pastor Albert gave some practical rules of engagement in, these, in having these difficult conversations and how to avoid certain pitfalls that kill the relationship. And if you've missed it, I encourage you to listen to the sermon series online. I'd like to end with a story, one last story to encourage you. So when I was about 30 years old, uh, the person that um, victimized me as a child, he approached me and he asked for forgiveness. He came to me and, and the guilt and the shame that he was feeling was just too much for him to bear. And he asked for forgiveness. And I sat there, I took a moment And it considered all the pain and brokenness that resulted from his offense against me. You know, it affected the way I saw myself. It affected my relationships. It affected my marriage. It even affected my relationship with God. All these ways. But I looked at him And suddenly, I just felt God's peace just wash over me. I felt a deep pity and even compassion for this person. And I forgave him. I even prayed over him. And I asked God to purify his heart to purify his hands, to purify his mind. And he wept and wept. And I truly believe God used my words to draw him into repentance, and not with me, but repentance with the Lord. You see, even in that place, that broken place of my pain and my deep shame, you know, that, that, that broken place that probably most defiled and twisted my self-identity as a daughter of God, even in that place, it's not about me. It's about Christ in me. I pray that God's peace will flow in those dark places for you. I'm praying that there is healing and wholeness so that God can use you to restore and rebuild relationships, the relationships around you, the relationships between people and God. And I'm praying that as a church, that each and every one of us, that we are striving to keep our relationships holy and pure. 
So who did the Lord bring to your mind today? What brother or sister? Keep that person in mind while I pray for us. Father God, this is a theme that that keeps returning for me and is coming up in my sermons all the time, but we are the body of Christ. We are the temples of the living God. You choose to dwell in us, Lord. What a beautiful thing that is. And how much does the enemy want to break that unity apart? That he wants to destroy relationships. But God, you know how hard it is. It's not easy just to let go of the hurt and pain in our lives. Father, you know this which is the reason why you give us the Holy Spirit. God, I'm praying for every broken heart out there right now. Those hearts that feel anger and bitterness, resentment. Those hearts that have been so used to holding that pain in their hearts not letting go where it's festering causing harm to us even physically spiritually God I pray that you put balm on those areas Lord your healing balm Father That, that, that darkness has in those places. Lord, I pray that you release it by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is not from our own abilities, Lord. It is you, Father God, in your goodness and in your power and in your desire to set us free, Lord. It is you, Father God. Our hearts of stone, Lord, I pray that you change them to hearts of flesh. Soften those hardened areas, Lord. Allow the spirit of forgiveness, the spirit of mercy, the spirit of compassion flow in those places, Lord. Let us be a people that restore, rebuild, renew all those broken places, Lord. Proclaim words of healing in those places, God.
thank you for your faithfulness and goodness and forgiveness of our sins for your son Jesus Christ. Pray for all these things in Jesus' name.